All right. If you have your Bibles, let's open up together to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 21. This Sunday is Palm Sunday, and it's an important moment in the history of the world because it's the moment that people began to anticipate and expect Jesus coming and entering into Jerusalem. This is what made way for what we call the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life on earth before the cross. And this ties in perfectly to a series of messages that we've been walking through as a church, and it's called Identity Crisis. See, in the world today that we live in, people are going through identity crisis. They don't know who they are. And many people, as we've learned through this series, you'll never know who you are until you know whose you are, until you know who you belong to, who loved you so much that he created you, and especially the one who loved you so much that he died for you. Until you know that, you live without a sense of true identity. Who am I really? And so we have been discovering what it means to really discover our identity and what it means to have our identity in Christ. And last week you got a chance to hear from Pastor Ron and he talked about identity theft. What happens when our identity is literally stolen from us and we have a very real enemy that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy and take away the identity that God has given us as the children of God. This uh, Sunday we're going to talk about what it means to have a mistaken identity. What it means to have your identity literally mistaken, that, that someone isn't who they, that you thought that they were, and what that actually can mean in the life of us and in the life of Jesus especially. As I'm just getting ready for this and kind of thinking about this concept, I had seen in the news, uh, news feed as I was looking online, these articles were popping up continually about people who resemble celebrities. I don't know if you've ever seen something like this, but there are people that walk around and they are tormented every day because they look like someone famous. And uh, the first person, who does this look like to you? Morgan Freeman, right? This poor security guard gets people posing with him for pictures, gets people taking, asking for autographs. They're like, hey, you know, I, you know, I love the last movie that you were in. And he's thinking, you know, you don't know. I'm a security guard. You really think that I would be working if I'm Morgan Freeman. But that's uh, what, what happens for him. Uh, someone saw this guy at a ballpark, and they thought it was Tom Hanks. So they're wanting to get pictures with him. They're thinking that it's him. Uh, people aren't as impressed with the Tom Hanks one as the Morgan Freeman one. And I had someone else come to me between services, and uh, they told me a similar story. And I'm not going to tell you who they look like, but they said that they get stopped in airports. They get stopped uh, all around. People try to take pictures with them. Even after they find out that they're not uh, the person they, that they thought they were, they still want to take a picture. I guess they want to lie about it. Uh, <laughs> But I'll tell you what, mistaken identity can be a funny thing, but it can also be a very troubling thing. Because I can imagine for many of these people that someone, they'll, they'll be sitting there going through their life, eating their lunch, whatever they're doing, and they'll see a little crowd of people come. They'll start whispering to each other. One of them will get up the courage, walk over, you know, excuse me, Mr. Freeman? No? <laughs> oh, okay. And then they just turn around and walk away as if you don't matter then anymore. If you're not who they thought you were, then they, you don't have any worth to them at all. Having a mistaken identity can be very serious. There are people every year that are imprisoned, that are picked out of some kind of lineup, that are accused of something. They're arrested. Some of them are even tried, found guilty, and placed in prison to find out years later that they are not who people thought they were. 
and their identity had been mistaken, and it takes a long time for them to, to be set free of whatever it is that was being held against them. It's important for us to know exactly who it is that we are talking about, that we have relationship with, that we are connected to, because if we suffer from mistaken identity, it can have dire consequences. There is no example of this more vivid than what we see in Scripture. Because there was one man who walked the earth over 2,000 years ago, and his name was Jesus. And Jesus, many of the people around him, they were going through an identity crisis because they could not identify who he really was. They had this continued question, who is this guy? Because he's healing the sick, he's even raised the dead to life, he said that he has the power to forgive sins, He's talking about tearing down a temple and rebuilding it in three days. He's saying his father in heaven, he's healing on the Sabbath. Who is this guy, Jesus? And if we are called to have our identity in him, we have to answer that very question. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? Because people in the world of that time, they just couldn't figure him out. They could not understand Jesus. And I would venture to say that after 2,000 years, we still run into that same problem today. There are many people that think they know Jesus because they know about him. But do you really know him? And do you know what it means to have your identity in him? To truly, truly identify with Jesus Christ, the one we read about in God's word. It isn't enough just to know about him because God's made it possible for you to know him in a personal way. And so that's what we're going to discover today through uh, the reading of this text and studying God's word in Matthew's gospel. Let's start by reading uh, Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says that when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite of you and immediately you're going to find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt of fowl, of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And Jesus sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road. And others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. And what were they saying? Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus the Naz from Nazareth in Galilee. There was one question on the minds of all that were gathering together in Jerusalem. Nearly 2,000 years ago, as Jesus was entering into this city, this place where people came from all over the world to worship at a critical time, to remember a key moment in history, which is the Passover, which we read about in the book of Exodus, when God rescued his people from Egypt, whenever he freed them from the hand of oppression, and he set them free to lead them into a new identity as a new people, as his own possession, his own people, Israel, the people of God. And as Jesus entered onto the scene, 
There was much debate about his actual identity. Who is he? They could simply say he's Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He's a prophet. He's a, 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 a man, a priest. He's a, he's a rabbi. He's, who is he? Because he's doing things that we just don't understand how he has the authority to act this way. How does he have the authority to speak this way? Who has given him the authority to do these things? And so many plotted against him, many despised him because they didn't understand him. They didn't know how to answer this question. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Have you been able to answer that question in your own life? Let's discover together what it means, some of the words that were being used here, some of the things that were being spoken. Because it's important for us to note that many did not know who Jesus was. There was a lot of mixed debate about this subject. In fact, you'll see it all throughout the Gospels as people are discussing. If you go to Matthew chapter 16, and you could turn there briefly with me. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is at a place with his disciples, and it's called Caesarea Philippi. And if you look in verse 13, he's there amongst his disciples. And if you know anything about Caesarea Philippi, you can go there today if you visit Israel. It's in the northern part. And there was a place where there were many temples at one point in time. There were many places that people were worshiping. In fact, there was a big, uh, a big area of worship that was there, a giant temple. And it was a pagan worship site where they would actually do human sacrifices. They would actually kill people for their gods. And people were coming and they're bringing their gifts and they're trying to please their gods. And, and Jesus stands there among all of this hustle and bustle and he asks this one question. He says, who do people say that I am? So he's there where they're worshiping all these other gods and he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And his disciples begin to speak back and they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. And G Jesus then turns it to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says that, Jesus looks at him and he says, blessed are you, Simon, because this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood. It's only been revealed by my father in heaven. And then he turns it on him and he says, and now you get a new name. You're no longer Simon. You're now Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And he says that to Peter, this moment in time. But there's something you need to know when Jesus stops him and needs to clarify something. He says, listen, what you're saying right now, I don't even know if you understand it. Because <laughs> your eyes have only been opened if God has opened them himself. You don't know what you're saying, Peter but my Father in heaven has revealed it. This is one of the only other moments in Scripture where we see Jesus actually lean in to his identity. Jesus goes to great lengths throughout the Gospels, if you notice it, if you've read along, to, to really not disclose his identity, to almost conceal his identity. He doesn't want people knowing until the time has come. Jesus said on a few occasions in the Gospel, my time has not yet come. Therefore, he wasn't looking to reveal who he was. Whenever demons were there and he was ready to cast them out, they start calling out and they start giving the titles that no one really knows and understands about who he really is. And Jesus shuts them up and says, no, quiet. Don't speak. Whenever he heals and people come, he says, don't tell anyone what has happened to you. 
oftentimes people, just like today, they're not very good at obeying Jesus. They go and they did exactly the opposite. And they go and they spread the word about who he is. But there's a moment here leading up to this uh, account of the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday. Because this is the day that we remember this moment in history. This moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as her coming king to begin a series of events that would lead him to the cross that would bring us to Easter Sunday in an empty tomb. But right before this point in time, if you go right back, right before chapter 21, a few verses before that, I want you to start in Matthew chapter 20, verse uh, 29, and I want you to look at what happens here. Because this is another example of what happens and what leads us to Jesus fully stepping into his identity publicly. It says in verse 29 that as they were leaving Jericho, and they're heading up to Jerusalem, a large crowd was following him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. That term being used is very significant. This is what we would call a messianic title. Messianic means Messiah. That this was a title that was reserved and only to be used for those that the prophets had spoken about, there was one that was coming. He was one that was coming through the root of Jesse, through David, through King David, would come a redeemer, a king like the people had never seen before. A king that would rule and reign, a king that would establish God's presence in a way that had never been established before on earth. One that would bring freedom, one that would usher in a brand new age for God's people one where they would have relationship with God again. They had been waiting for some time, waiting on this one that would come, one that they would call the Messiah, the Christ, or they would call the Son of David. That meant that he would be a king, like the king, kings of old, but a greater king. He would be the one that God promised and the prophets spoke of. And so they use this title, Son of David. And as they say it, look at the response of the crowd around them. It says the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Why? Because this was completely inappropriate. You don't use that title for this guy. You don't say that. So they say, son of David, have mercy on us. And they're like, hey, quiet. What are you doing? What are you talking about? But what did they do? They said it even louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stops in his tracks. And he called to them, and here's what he says. What do you want me to do? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And it says, move with compassion, Jesus. Touch their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight, and then they followed him. This is amazing. This is incredible. One of the reasons why is because Jesus has worked and performed a miracle. And how many of you know that Jesus is alive today, and he's still in the miracle business? He still can do the exact same things that we read about here. It's amazing. But Jesus also turned and stepped into his identity. He didn't say, hey, be quiet. He wasn't a part of the crowd. They said, son of David, have mercy on us. And he turns to them. And he says, yes, what can I do for you? Could you imagine what the crowds would have thought in that moment in time? 
that especially his disciples, they're with him and people are saying things and he's quietly hushing them and trying to keep them at bay. And finally, he turns, he says, yes, that's me. What, do you, what, what would you like me to do? They would have gasped. Like, what, you, you, why would you say that? You're him? And so when you wonder about this big commotion that's building and brewing leading up to Palm Sunday, it's because there's so much anticipation that this guy who is coming, Jesus, is their long-awaited king and that Jesus was about to change everything. He was about to change everything. He was going to turn this whole town, this whole city upside down. Everything that they knew was about to change forever. And they were so excited. And you have to see, if you read in John's gospel, the progression of miracles that are happening up until the point in John 11, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, this happens right before Jesus then heads towards this moment in time, the triumphal entry. I mean, people are ecstatic. It gets so deafening, the way that people are crying out, that when people try to stop them in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, listen, if you don't let them cry out, the rocks are going to start screaming about this. It's evidence something big is happening. And Jesus is entering in. And you know what they're shouting? Look back in chapter 21. If they're crying out to him as he's going into the village, they're saying, Hosanna to who? The son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. They're saying this, save us, son of David, save us. You're here to save us. And they're celebrating. They're taking branches. They're waving them. They're throwing them on the ground. And Jesus is now entering in as the true king of God's people. And they're just, they're just ecstatic over it, that he would come. But there's a few things that are peculiar about him. One of them is his means of transportation. A normal king would ride in on a chariot, a, a trusty steed, a well-trained animal that would have precision in how it would travel, but that isn't Jesus. What does he do? He rides in on a donkey. <laughs> he, he rides in. It's like a caricature of a king that would come into town. A true king would come in this trusty steed, a well-trained animal. It says that he rides in on a colt of a donkey. Do you know what that means? It means it's even unbroken. It would not even know what to do. It would freak out over all the, all the static, all the commotion, all the people and yet he rides in smoothly. This beast is at peace under his care and direction. But the way that he entered in as well sent a symbol that it wasn't by military might or strength or power that he was coming, but he was coming in peace. It harkens all the way back to a prophecy that was given in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, but he's humble and mounted on a donkey. This was the king that was coming. That there's a problem, though, because the people were expecting a certain type of king. They were expecting Jesus to be who they wanted Jesus to be. They wanted to be a king like the kings that they knew, but powerful, more powerful than any other king. They wanted Jesus to be a king that would come and change everything around them, to change all their problems and make them go away. You see, they were plagued with circumstances that were beyond their control, and they were waiting for a king who would come and change their circumstances, change their surroundings, change their environment, change their city, change all those things. But there's only one problem. Jesus wasn't that type of king. 
Jesus wasn't a king that came to change their circumstances. They were, they were desperate for this king that had the power to change all the things around them. But what they didn't realize is they were getting a king who had a power far greater, who had the power to change their hearts. That wasn't what they were looking for, though. They were looking for a king who would come and who would overthrow the Roman Empire, a king who would come and establish a physical kingdom, a king that would come and give them temporary relief of all their different struggles and trials. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for Jesus to change their circumstances. But Jesus wasn't interested in changing their circumstances. He had a greater mission. It was to change the condition of their heart to rescue them out of sin, to overcome a greater enemy than they even knew of, an enemy that was out to steal, kill, and destroy their lives and their future. And Jesus was on a mission. And the reason why we go from Palm Sunday to Good Friday when some of the same people that are shouting, Hosanna, save us, son of David, are then shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas, is because they were having a case of mistaken identity with Jesus. He wasn't who they wanted him to be. You know why? Because he was too busy being who they needed him to be, their savior and redeemer. But they wanted him just to be their powerful king. They wanted to be him a king of war and victory. He was the prince of peace. And he came, and he said, the greatest victory in the history of the world is not going to be won on any battlefield, but on the battlefield of Calvary where my body will be broken and my blood will be poured out for the sins of humanity so that they could be forgiven. They were interested in temporary relief. Jesus came to bring everlasting change. He came to change everything, starting with their very hearts. Too often, I believe that this idea of trying to make Jesus who we want him to be and only accepting him on our own terms is not just an issue that we see from Palm Sunday, but it permeates our churches today. So often we walk through this life with such a shallow faith and we wonder why we're having an identity crisis because our identity is found in Jesus, but it's our version of who we want Jesus to be. A version of Jesus who's come to give us everything we'd ever want, who is more like Santa Claus than a savior, who's someone that we say, oh, come, I need this and I need that and I want my life to be free from struggle. That's not the Jesus that we read about in Scripture. And too often, people can, can feel as though that's who they're serving. And they wonder why they don't walk in the power we read about in Scripture. That power comes through truly being willing to follow him completely. Follow him with everything that we have, not on our own terms. Jesus is hard to figure out for the people. And as we go through time, people try to figure out who he is. I, I love what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, he, he wrote about who Jesus is, and he said that there's really a trilemma when you study the Bible. And that trilemma is this, that Jesus is either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he is Lord. He's either who he says he is, or he's lying really, really well, or he's just a complete lunatic. And people... People try to make him who they want him to be, but that doesn't fit with Scripture. You have to see him as who he is, Lord, Lord of all. And if he's Lord, that means you decided to follow him, leaving everything behind, saying, Lord, I hold on to nothing. I'm all in. I'm following you. Jesus went in and he proved something by where he went first. He comes into Jerusalem. And if he was there to overthrow the government, the first place he goes is to a palace, is to some kind of fortified area. 
where he can attack the, the people that, that would, would want to do him harm, the defenses, he would bring them down. But it, what shows Jesus' mission is that he shows up first to the temple. And as he enters into the temple, you see a moment of passion in the life of Jesus. That moment of passion culminates with Jesus driving out the money changers, flipping over tables. Why? He says, this is a place of worship. This is a place of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. You are taking advantage of God's people. And worship is at the center of it. That's what matters most, is that he would restore a right way to worship. That was foreshadowing to what he was ultimately going to do because that temple would one day no longer stand. And it says, now we, the church, the people of God, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God now dwells in us. And that's what matters most to him, that our hearts would be made in such a condition that we would be able to have fellowship with God again, that we could have a right relationship with him. I'm going to invite Pastor Brian and the worship team to come forward. I want you to turn with me back to Matthew chapter 16. As we talk about what it means to have our identity in Christ, what it means to truly be one with him, what it means to not have a case of mistaken identity with Jesus where we're not just trying to make him who we want him to be, but accept him for who he really is and decide that we will follow him. We have to look to his word and we have to then walk in obedience to who he says that he is because he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He is who he says that he is. And when we read here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in verse 24. And he says this. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone wishes to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If anyone wants to do that, this is the way to have your identity in me. It's not just to say a prayer. It's not just to show up at a church building one day a week. It's not to buy the t-shirt and wear it. It's to every single day deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him wherever it is that he will lead you. Because he says, whoever wants to save his life has to lose it. Whoever wants to, will lose his life for my sake, will gain it. And if you try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. Jesus redefines everything around what it means to have your identity in him with this simple command, this simple invitation. Deny yourself. What does that mean? It means literally set aside yourself, your own ambitions, your own desires, your own wants, your own longings. Say, I'm not here to satisfy myself anymore. I'm here to deny myself for someone greater. The people were ready to embrace Jesus on their own terms. But then as things started to change and he wasn't the powerful king they thought he would be, they were quick to deny him. Even when his own followers saw the going get difficult, saw the trials break out, They saw the shallowness of their own commitment to him. They couldn't even stay up and pray with him in the garden. 
And soon, when he was bleeding on the cross, they scattered. The man Peter who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I will never deny you. I will never abandon you. Whenever the pressure came, he says, I don't even know the man. Three times. He denied Jesus. He didn't deny himself. And I'll tell you what, church, we need to get this message in our bones because the days are growing darker. We believe that we have a Lord who's coming back for his church and the pressure and the difficulty and the trial will come. Where will we be? I'll tell you what, it's only those who say, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Think about those that stood on a beach in Libya and all they needed to do was deny Jesus and they could live. They said, no, we deny ourselves because he is alive and living in us. And they allowed their lives to be lost. I'll tell you what, I don't know where the church in America would be today if that kind of persecution broke out among us. Where would we be? What would we do? Jesus said it. He gave us this call as his people. Do you want to truly have identity in me? Do you want to truly be marked by your, the very identification that you have? Would not even be you anymore, but it would be me? What's in the center of that logo there, the cross? That we would be so marked and we would so see and understand the purpose of the cross of Jesus Christ in the midst of our life that it marks us, it changes us, it leads us. It is now what we carry with us. What does it mean to carry your cross? It doesn't mean to live in this life with some kind of extra burden, some kind of anticipated trial. Someone goes through something difficult for a sustained time. Oh, that's just their cross to bear. That's not the cross Jesus is talking about. The cross he's talking about is this, that you literally pack up all that you are and you get ready to march towards Calvary saying, here, I'm all in. I'm ready. Whenever someone was meant to carry their cross meant this, that they were ready for their own death. That's what it really meant. When Jesus was carrying his cross, that meant that he was marching towards his death. What Jesus said is that you have to be ready to live for me and to even lose your life for me. That's what matters in the end, that you're just sold out. There's nothing else. You don't even value your own life above obedience to me. He says, carry your cross and follow me. That's what it means to have your identity in me. And to follow me, to not go to the left or to the right, not follow your own desires of your own selfish heart, but to follow me. If we do that, we're in him. We're walking with him. That's what it means to have our identity in Christ. At this week, I want us to, as a church, pray about that and say, Lord, challenge me in my faith. Where am I right now? Because I'll tell you what, you have a Savior who loved you so much that he died for you. There was someone who came and he saw the condition of your heart and my heart and the condition of humanity and the things that have ashamed you, the things that you hide, the things that cause you guilt and grief and weigh you down and burden you. Jesus said, I love you so much. I pay the price for all of that, all that you've ever done so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be free, so that you could have life instead of death. And today, I know there might be some here, you, you need to accept that free gift that God's given to you. There's others of us, we need to remember the gift that God has given us and live our lives for Him. Would you stand with me and would you bow your heads and close your eyes?
I'm talking to anyone here and you've heard this word today and you say, you know, I need to experience the forgiveness of Jesus in my life. I, I haven't seen him as who he really is. And I want to ask him to forgive me of my sin. Today, if you want to commit to follow Jesus with all that you are, and you're ready to take that commitment and take it seriously, I want you to lift your hand above your head proudly and say, that's me, I'm accepting Jesus. Is there anyone here? You're saying, I'm, fo I'm, I'm following Jesus, I'm all in. Amen, I see hands going up. Some of you here that you maybe you're recommitting your hearts to the Lord. I'm going to invite our altar workers, some that will be interceding for us today. Would you come, altar workers, and would you just begin to pray? I just sense the Lord wants to move in hearts today. And I want you just to begin praying, altar workers, for those that will come. I want to give you just a moment, church, to just reflect on the meaning of today because it's really meant to draw a line in the sand. It's meant to draw a place to say, this is what it means. This is who I am. Jesus is your Savior. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the one that came and he died for your sins. And God raised him from the dead. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is God in the flesh. He's our Savior, our Deliverer, our Redeemer. And he's a king that's coming back for us one day. And we await him. And when he comes back, he's looking for those whose hearts are completely for him, that are willing to follow him and walk in obedience to him and to know him and to love him and to make him known. And today, would you just ask the Lord to, to stir up such a passion in your heart to know him, to love him in that way. Allow the Holy Spirit to challenge areas of, of shallowness in your own faith. Have challenge areas where you say, Lord, I don't know that I, I, I'm really denying myself. I don't know that I'm really carrying my cross and following you. Lord Jesus, come and just rest over this place at this time, Lord. Would you speak to us? Would you lead us this week towards the cross? Would you remind us of your sacrifice? Would you remind us, Lord God, of the calling that you have on our lives to be your followers, to be disciples, to be those that will make you known to the ends of the earth, to be those that walk by the power of your spirit, to be those that are truly your ambassadors, making you known, Lord God. Give us boldness. Give us confidence in you. Lord God, give us roots that go down deep, Lord God, and are held even in times of difficulty and trial. Lord, we commit ourselves to you today. And we pray as you lead us towards this Friday as we remember your death, Lord God. When we come together to worship, Lord, it will be a time of, of sweetness in your presence, Lord God of our hearts being open before you, Lord. And on Sunday, may it be the greatest celebration we've ever experienced. May we see people come to know you as Lord and as Savior. Lord God, I pray that you challenge each one of us to go out and to reach out to those that still need to know you, Lord God, and draw them in so that they would know about the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of the empty tomb. Lord, help us to not have any case of mistaken identity. Lord, help us to see you clearly for who you are. And help us to follow you as we have our identity in you. In your name we pray. Amen.